Hello listeners, I'm Michael Lanspa, Web Director for the ATS Critical Care Assembly. Thanks for listening in. This is the second half of a pro-con debate on the new sepsis three definitions with Dr. Christopher Seymour from the University of Pittsburgh and Dr. Steve Simpson from the University of Kansas. The first half is available from the ATS Critical Care website. Please listen to it before listening to this. Now, on to the second half of the debate. I'd like to get to a concern that's been raised by some emergency room and hospitalist physicians. And that is the question of how useful SOFA scores are outside the ICU. And some of these uh, physicians have argued that the sepsis-3 definition as a screening test may be hard to operationalize outside the ICU or perhaps may not be as valid. For example, a lot of sites are unfamiliar with these scores. So, Steve, as someone who's specialized in quality improvement, what is your opinion about operationalizing this new definition outside the ICU? Well, first we have to acknowledge that the sepsis-3 document itself doesn't advocate using SOFA outside the ICU. Um, and according to their own uh, ROC criteria, or receiver operator characteristic curve, QSOFA actually outperformed SOFA outside the ICU. As a quality improvement person, I don't think it should be hard to operationalize recognizing QSOFA outside the ICU because because the criteria are fairly blunt. It's almost like being slapped in the face that this person has life-threatening organ dysfunction um, and, and that they've got a really severe illness they probably had for quite some time if it's causing them confusion or hypotension, for example. However, I, I think that we still can do better for screening. And I, and I know Chris, he said some good things about screening, but I, I, I believe that screening quite literally, is what we need the most of. I think the principal drawback to QSOFA is going to be that our time to respond is shortened compared with a protocol that recognizes earlier that someone's in trouble. Two, I think that the consequences of one or two inappropriate antibiotic doses, by and large, are far smaller than the consequences of missing the progression to the level of QSOFA or other uh, SOFA-related organ dysfunctions. And then number three, right now there aren't any data beyond those that we already have available to us that pertain to severe sepsis to inform us how we need to react to those patients. So one thing, though, that I think is that during the period of the study of the sepsis-3 investigation, it's really likely that, that UPMC was actually working to improve the recognition and treatment of patients who met the current criteria. Um, it, it's pretty likely that suspected infection in SIRS was considered a clue to initiate sepsis measures, and it's possible that SIRS is less predictive of, uh, of prolonged ICU stay or mortality than in some previous studies just because, frankly, because it was being treated early and aggressively. I, I don't think that accounts for all the difference between SIRS and QSOFA, but it'd be surprising to me if it didn't account for some. So, no, no actually, so Steve, if, I'm happy to weigh in, and I think this is a really good discussion to have uh, here in the moment. Um, the point Steve is bringing up, I think, relate to where we're, we want to set the needle for screening. And if screening is meant to get antibiotics to patients who are not yet on antibiotics and have not yet been recognized as infected, then QSOFA is likely not the perfect tool, nor SOFA. And in fact, a whole combination of these criteria that hint at an inflammatory response and some element of, of organ dysfunction 
is probably where we'll end up. But let's remember that QSOFA was not derived as a screening tool in antibiotic-naive patients. It was derived in a cohort of patients who were already treated, who were already given antibiotics, already had a culture obtained, perhaps had already gotten fluid, and it was among those in whom we were triaging who did or did not fare badly. So I, I think I agree with the wholehearted desire to screen for patients, and in fact, Surviving Sepsis Campaign and others still advocate that we use many of the markers and SIRS to do so. Uh, so I think we're I think we're pretty consistent on that. Yeah, true. And and I think I, I it's very clear and it's coming out very clear that I place a high emphasis on screening and detecting people as early as we can conceivably detect them. There, there's no question. What I was about to say is you, we, we know this, you know this, that the general principle of screening is we want to find something that's high sensitivity to screen with, and then we want a high specificity test to confirm with. And, and in essence, I feel that's what we had with our previous definitions. We look for people looked for infection with SIRS and then confirmed the presence of a serious organ dysfunction to confirm the presence of a severe sepsis. And, and I think the problem is with, with this particular disease is that even when we've got the screening test, let's say that SIRS detects as early as conceivably possible in this disease, while we're making the diagnosis, while we're looking at it, the bacteria are continuing to replicate the host response continues to go awry, and if we detect an infection, in my mind, serious enough to cause SIRS, it behooves us to move at that point. And, I, and I'll just illustrate. I think that you can imagine if, if you were to cut your hand today and tomorrow you had a cellulitis running up your arm and found yourself with a, a pulse rate of 110 and and a fever of 40 degrees, I don't think you would hesitate in saying, I want treatment and I want it now. And I think the same thing goes for most most of our patients. And, but that's true. And, that's treatment for infection, not treatment for sepsis. Right. Well, this is uh, treatment according to infection as... Uh, no, in fact, I, the, that isn't the way that I see it at all. For example... Mm -hmm. Let me just give an example here to illustrate. I recently did cut my hand um, on a can, on a tin can, didn't appropriately pour alcohol on it, uh, was left with a wound that got infected. It wasn't infected badly. I never had SIRS. I never worried about it too much. It, it went away. On the other hand, as I said, were that to have have progressed, I think the development of systemic manifestations is a different demarcation point from redness and tenderness at the site of infection. So so I do believe, and I, you may have just said this, Chris, I think there's kind of a continuum here that we need to recognize. And frankly, that's that almost is my biggest my biggest objection to the new diagnostic criteria is we don't we we continue to say this is oh this is just infection but it isn't just infection it's infection that's severe enough to have caused a stress response that we can detect and i think that's an important fact that we shouldn't overlook 
Well, I think that's a great point. Chris, do you have any other uh, response about this as far as using the uh, SOFA or QSOFA score as a pre-ICU screening tool or any other issues with operationalizing this definition outside the ICU? Uh, so that, those were really great anecdotes by Steve, and I hope his finger is doing better. Um, but it also <laughs> highlights highlights just conceptually how there may be folks in different camps that the bits of tachycardia and fever that may identify a patient who has an inflammatory response to infection is a bit different than the patient who's developed organ dysfunction. And I think sepsis 3 started from a definition where life-threatening organ dysfunction was part and parcel of the words that are in the definition. And without that, the patient isn't yet septic. So so I think, obviously, we're highlighting different views, uh, and it's important to recognize that. Regarding the operational uh, sort of implementation of some of these criteria, it's worth noting that 40-50% of hospitals do have electronic health records, and that many of them are using early warning scores and the like that are embedded in the EHR to alert or flag patients uh, with a variety of critical illnesses, including sepsis. And depending on how uh, additional studies perform and how different uh, models come together and, and an institution's goal to either screen in the, uh, in the naive patients or triage those patients who are already treated, I think many of these clinical prompts we're discussing or even the SOFA score can be easily embedded uh, with our informatics colleagues in the electronic health record to assist beyond just clinical acumen. And as a... Uh as you pointed out, Mike, as a quality improvement or a person interested in quality improvement, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think we need to do that, as a matter of fact, and we need to do it sooner rather than later. Well, I can't agree more. I think at the end of the day, it seems that most clinicians want a tool that's useful. Uh, Chris, can you tell me how the new sepsis criteria outperforms the old criteria in terms of diagnostic accuracy or predictive validity? Well, thanks, Mike. So I think usefulness is a really nice word, and we've written a little bit about this, how usefulness is not just predictive validity or or the concepts we've talked about or or diagnostic accuracy, but rather a whole host of different features of a tool that could be used as part of a, uh, as part of criteria. In fact, things like reliability or how well these criteria can be measured across centers in a similar type of way. Maybe something like cost. Are these criteria that will cost $5 per test and become prohibitive at smaller hospitals? Or are those that require advanced monitoring and can't be measured in low-middle-income countries or in, you know, septic patients in Rwanda, for example? So there are a variety of types of usefulness that were considered by the task force beyond just the predictive validity, which is described in the paper, when they were developing consensus about these clinical prompts and criteria for sepsis. I think QSOFA has advantages because it does not require a single blood test. It can be evaluated by walking to the bedside and looking at the patient. And that has a number of advantages in clinical care. In fact, you can walk to the bedside as many times as you want in an hour and see how your patient's doing and doesn't require lag time at the laboratory or blood draws, uh, et cetera. So I think that's, that's really attractive, and it's obviously low cost. SOFA does require some lab tests, not many beyond those found in SERS criteria or other criteria in sepsis 2 or sepsis 1. So I think we need to consider all of these when having debates such as this one about whether sepsis 3 is comparable or not to others and think beyond just the statistical tests that are in the manuscript. Steve, what are your thoughts? How, How would you respond to that? I think those are all very good points. Again, I'm going to return to to where I have been, uh, and I'm sorry to 
keep repeating this, but truth of it is that SIRS is a free test as well in, in uh, virtually every instance, and you can see these data from going to the bedside as well. So, so I am going to focus a little bit on some of the statistics in the study, though, just, just to say this. So, so how we got to QSOFA well, part of how we got to QSOFA, um, is that it actually maximized the area under that receiver operator characteristic curve. Um, so infection plus QSOFA had a slightly higher area under the curve than infection plus SIRS. But we don't put into play receiver operator characteristic curves. Um, we have a curve that shows, says overall QSOFA has better predictive ability than SIRS, but that's not how we put them into action. We actually selected a particular point on each of those receiver operator characteristic curves uh, that we've chosen as diagnostic criteria. Um, so we've chosen SIRS two or more, and we've chosen QSOFA two or more as the threshold or cutoff that we're going to use. So each of those actually does have a particular sensitivity and specificity for detecting the outcome of interest, whether it's mortality or ICU stay. And, and Chris actually shows us that in, in table E3 of the electronic supplement with his study, uh, where he shows the sensitivity and specificity for hospital mortality, but not ICU stay, just hospital mortality. And interestingly, in my mind, SIRS and QSOFA perform fairly similarly there at mortality prediction, with SIRS a little bit more sensitive and QSOFA uh, more specific than than SIRS, but I think these are important statistical points that do have to be paid attention to. Again, I'm going to return to that we currently, or the the before sepsis three um, diagnostic criteria, are a bit, in my mind, a bit more nuanced because they simply recognize that we move from infection to system-wide manifestations of infection, to organ dysfunction, to shock. And it's not that it's a smooth continuum, but that such a continuum does exist. And we, we don't allow ourselves that with the new sepsis-3 criteria. So, Steve, in your chest con article, you had previously expressed concern that the new sepsis-3 definition de-emphasizes intervention at the earlier stages of sepsis. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure. There's a quote about sepsis that I've been using for two or three years as I, I attempt to teach sepsis-naive individuals, so to speak, about how to recognize sepsis. And the quote's actually not from a doctor, but from a political writer, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, although he was quoting the doctors of his day in the 16th century, by the way. Um, he said, as the physicians say it happens in hectic fever, that in the beginning it's difficult to diagnose, but easy to treat. But in the course of time, having been neither diagnosed nor treated in the beginning, it becomes easy to diagnose and difficult to treat. And, and I think I touched on this before. We were just talking about the, the uh, study from University of Chicago uh, and the fact that the majority of patients meet SERS criteria 17 hours before ICU transfer deaths and the QSOFA patients met the 
two-item cutoff just five hours before the composite endpoint, or at least the median or the majority. And, and so I think what we do is we move from criteria that are perhaps more subtle and less specific, like SIRS, to finding uh, some not at all subtle and more specific findings, like QSOFA, um, mental status change, blood pressure change, not at all uh, subtle. So I think that probably encapsulates the main things that I wanted to say. In the sepsis-3 document, they do say that, that they, they had a fairly unanimous opinion that SIRS was not particularly helpful. And I find that a little bit difficult. And they also make the statement that these criteria were not based, not actually based on data. And there are a couple of important things that I want to touch on about that. And the first is that I want to say there actually was a mountain of clinical evidence that preceded and informed the opinions of the sepsis one authors even. Um, and when we say that the criteria weren't based on empiric criteria, it's sort of like criticizing the first surviving sepsis guidelines for stating that antibiotics were a grade D or a grade E recommendation. There may not have been randomized controlled trials, but you'd be way off the mark to try and treat sepsis without antibiotics. And in fact, you can go looking to history all the way back. You can go to Hippocrates and his contemporaries, and they even called some process sepsis and associated it with fever. And that was millennia before anyone even knew what an infection was, for heaven's sakes. I, I just don't agree with our overall rationale that the lack of using a large database previously invalidates the notion that these components of SIRS make some a priori bad criteria. Uh, and a lot of really smart diagnosticians have preceded us here. So, so I think the key point is I keep coming back to this thing that, yes, it's a little more difficult to recognize in the beginning, but that's when our treatment has the highest leverage and can make the biggest difference and, again, potentially prevent the outcomes that we are now calling the defining outcomes of sepsis. And so Steve appropriately emphasizes that there is a great historical body of literature that supports signs and symptoms of infection. What he's <laughs> talking about are signs and symptoms of infection, such as fever. And the beauty of sepsis 3 is that it studied patients who were already treated. And so that's how we might generalize the data. Um, and I think we have to be very rigorous in thinking about how you generalize these data. These were patients who had already had antibiotics and already had a body fluid culture. And thus, if we're really considering ways to move antibiotics earlier in the time frame, you're not going to use these criteria. You're going to use some other combination of criteria because that's not where we conducted our analyses. I think this has become a bit of SIRS are good versus SIRS are bad. And I would like to just continue to reiterate that we agree that systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria have a role. And in fact, as we've mentioned, we use them clinically every day. 
in the ICU and in the emergency department and on the ward to help us identify infection and patients who have suspected infection. And so in that sense, I continue to think Steve and I have common ground in this regard, but perhaps we're putting SIRS in different semantic buckets, and that's okay. Yeah, let me let me respond to that just a little bit because it's occurring to me one of the things that I think and a, a closely held belief that I haven't expressed yet, and that is in my experience training people who really are not critical care specialists, who really are are there trying to just diagnose their their own family medicine or internal medicine or surgery patients, et cetera, et cetera. I, I find that they're approach actually is what you were just saying, Chris, which is, oh, this infection with these systemic manifestations, it's just infection, when in point of fact, it is a stage that very likely may take them to the life-threatening organ dysfunction. And so there is no particular sense of urgency before I encounter these folks. There's no particular sense of urgency to paying attention to these systemic manifestations. And very often the outcome, as I'm sure you have seen, is the lack of an aggressive approach early leads to the manifestations that we both, you and I both, I think firmly believe that infection with organ dysfunction is the life-threatening key here. So I think we just perhaps you and I have a slightly different view of the urgency that these systemic manifestations should give us in our approach to treating. Over the past three decades, we've seen remarkable reduction in sepsis mortality, thanks in part to the studies that use sepsis 1 and sepsis 2 definitions, which were selected with less rigor than the current definition. So, Steve, going back to your editorial again in chest, you asserted that we need prospective studies demonstrating improved outcomes before attempting wholesale change. Can you elaborate what you mean by that? I think I touched on this before, but I think what we've attempted to do is to change a name change some criteria, put it into play with no idea of what the consequences are going to be of doing that. This isn't the same era as the Sepsis One conference, and at that time there hadn't been any previous consensus at all regarding how to diagnose any phase of sepsis. So anything they came up with that they could agree on and use as a platform moving forward was going to be an improvement over a non-existent system. So this is 2016. We are held to a much higher standard now for our patients' lives than to simply state that sepsis is now something different or it now has a different definition. We now have different diagnostic criteria, and everyone go forth and use them. And and frankly, we are and should be held to the higher standard of we need to show that these criteria actually are going to save lives before we tell everyone go use them. And then once we have some kind of proof that these things are more useful, that we do save more lives with them, then we can advocate that everyone change. Chris, what are your thoughts? Do you think we need a prospective validation study before adopting these definitions? Well, I think Steve is right that data is the key, right? And although there have been a variety of you know, observational small studies related to some elements of SIRS and other criteria throughout the years, 
there have been never a dedicated large investigation of clinical data to support a definitions consensus conference. So in fact, what Steve is asking for, we gave him in spades, in fact, for this task force for the first time. Um, and I think that is a really seminal point that needs to be emphasized, that this was not folks sitting around the table and debating the merits of certain thresholds, but rather millions of records across 170 hospitals from around the globe uh, were challenged and looked at uh, to derive and validate these new criteria. Now, the conceptual work to tease out the words that support the definition, in fact, was informed quite a bit by consensus. And I think that's uh, that's very similar to other fields. Um, and it's a bit of a, I mean, frankly, I, I, as a scientist, I love the idea of prospective trials of definitions and criteria. But in fact, we're not, we're not testing criteria. We would be testing in a randomized fashion use of enrollment criteria linked to a specific intervention. And as you know, we have a hard time coming up with new interventions beyond antibiotics and fluids that might make a difference for this patient population. Um, so I, I do expect that criteria will be investigated in that manner, um, and I hopefully will be able to use some uh, novel trial designs and a variety of different strategies to get at this. But, but, but we have to look at our colleagues and other syndromes and say, when the DSM comes out with a new version, they spend millions of dollars and have a variety of contributors that help us put together uh, how different syndromes are bucketed. Um, but it's quite rare to think that they might go forth with a randomized trial of different syndromic names to see how the naming itself changes outcomes, because it's not necessarily the name. It's what we do with those patients and the interventions uh, that are embedded in those trials. Um, so I look forward to some of those studies, and I, you know, I hope that we can actually be a part. I'd like to point out that the sepsis-3 definitions have been endorsed by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the American Thoracic Society, and the American Association of Critical Care Nurses. And um, as more time passes, there may be more confusion arising between clinicians who have adopted the new definition and those clinicians who have not, whether we're discussing comparison of studies or clinical outcomes. So my question for Steve is, do you think that the value of consensus outweighs the concerns of an imperfect definition? Nothing outweighs the value of saving additional patient lives, period. If I'm a patient, and actually I have been, I don't care which doctors agree with whom as long as you find my potentially lethal illness quickly and you treat it. And I think that that's an important thing to say, and we've got to maintain our focus on how many lives are we saving regardless of what our definition is. So does consensus outweigh that? No. I do want to talk a little bit about consensus, though, however. So you'll notice, well, I'll even say it for Chris, uh, 30 different societies have endorsed these definitions, uh, most of them critical care societies and a couple of emergency medicine societies. But there are a whole lot of societies that haven't. Um, as you know, the, the uh, CHEST, American College of CHEST Physicians, has not. And here's a list of some others that are not on that list. The American College of Physicians, the American Medical Association, the publisher of the definitions, uh, the Society of Hospital Medicine, the American College of Emergency Physicians, the American College of Surgeons, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and the list could go on. And I think the objection to that list is likely to be, well, these aren't critical care societies. 
And that, in my mind, actually points out sort of a blind spot of the definitions or the overall approach to the question. Like we said before, about 80% of sepsis cases start outside the hospital. And it should be obvious that the intensive care unit is not the portal of entry for any of those folks. So an additional bunch are identified on the hospital wards, and only a minority actually develop their sepsis while they're in the ICU. So intensivists, obviously, we've got to be trained, highly trained. We've got to be skilled. We've got to be able to take care of septic patients. But the vast majority of these folks are going to be detected or diagnosed by other people that aren't intensivists at all. And I think it's really important if we want a consensus that those physicians need to play a role, not just in endorsing a definition or not, but in the actual discussions about whether redefinition is necessary and in any development in the definition that takes place. This is Chris. I think these are great points. In fact, let's not, though, let perfect be the enemy of good. And mm. that although there are a variety of societies that haven't endorsed such sepsis 3, certainly those that haven't participated in the process uh, involve infectious disease, hospitalist medicine, uh, emergency medicine societies, and a variety of societies from around the globe. And in fact, the comparison is not necessarily to uh, an exhaustive, infinite list of potential endorses, but rather, what have we been able to accomplish in the past, and is this better, and in fact, more inclusive? And I would argue that this is progress. Are there things that the task force would have liked to do differently? Of course. But this is certainly a few steps beyond where we've been before. Whether I think it's it's a few steps beyond where we've been before or not, um, I don't know. But, but yeah, my the last thing I was going to say really is the to the extent that consensus is important, it, it should be sought amongst all the stakeholders and not just those of us who hold one end of the stick, i.e., the critical care end of the stick. I think that's that's about it that I have to say on the consensus item. It's probably worth pointing out that in the United States, CMS did release a letter that they don't intend to change their SEP1 criteria for public reporting measures, um, uh, which leaves us in the United States being held to the standards that we previously used for diagnosing septic patients, uh, even if we did have consensus, full consensus amongst all the societies. So I'll, I actually think it's a fantastic point by Steve uh, as it relates to CMS and public reporting. And that's because definitions and criteria aren't meant to be one size fit all. The purpose of criteria may be different depending on who the user is. Sepsis 3 was very much focused on clinical criteria for the clinician at the bedside. And this is quite different than the criteria that might be used for public reporting, for example, mm. or disease surveillance. Um, and we've written about this in companion papers in critical care medicine, where I think we need to think about what features of a definition and criteria are important for things like policy change or public reporting, such as reliability and ability to measure uh, across all centers over many years uh, versus criteria that are quick, easy, and low cost for the bedside. I fully agree with Steve that there'll be a lot of challenges for us as a field going forward for many years. Not only has CMS adopted criteria in SEP1, but the CDC is proposing additional surveillance criteria for their own efforts uh, that will only complicate our approach uh, to this important patient group. 
Um, and so embracing the fact that they're different for a variety of reasons um, is something that we all need to look in the mirror and sort of consider. Um, and uh, there have been some thought leaders who are trying to talk about this conceptually for us and, uh, and sort of help us realize why surveillance criteria for sepsis across an entire nation might be different than the criteria that the doctor at this moment is using at the bedside. Chris, I think those are very important and very valid points, by the way. This has been absolutely great. Do uh, any, of you, any of you have any closing thoughts or any other things that you'd like to add about this discussion? Sure. I'd like to, of course, thank the co-authors and the scientists, the clinicians, the task force, and the societies who helped and participate in this work. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of those researchers and folks pursuing additional studies after the release. Um, the more we learn, I think the better we're going to do uh, going forward. You know, the truth is we do need to keep this moving forward, and I don't mean to sound like a Luddite with persistence in, in using SIRS and other criteria, uh, given how we have a different view, way of looking at them, I think. Um, I do think we need to keep in mind that we need to maintain a diagnostic approach that I think several important things. One, it recognizes that sepsis is a continuum with multiple potential phases and not just an off-on switch where these particular criteria you have sepsis and those particular criteria you don't. That I think I'd like to see us focus on something besides predictive ability for prolonged ICU stay or death, but we have discussed that. We need to maintain emphasis, I think, on an approach to diagnosing at the earliest possible time and and we need to maintain focus on whether our definitions positively impact our ability to save lives. And, and as long as we do that, um, I, I think we will do our patients and ourselves well. All right. Well, it looks like we're out of time. So this concludes this ATS Critical Care Podcast. I'd like to thank both of our guests, Dr. Christopher Seymour and Dr. Steve Simpson, for the extremely informative and lively discussion. This has been an absolute pleasure for me. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, this is Mike Lanspa for the American <clears throat> Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Thoracic Society Critical Care Assembly. Thank you.